1: thing again where I cut short because we're approaching four and again you have the bios here. So uh, next we're going to have Michelle O'Brien joining us. She's a doctoral student in the sociology department and a graduate fellow at the Center for Studies in Demography and Ecology at the University of Washington. She received her MA from UW and her bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan. Uh, her research interests lie on the intersection of politics and demography. I will stop right there, so you have the time to speak, my elevator
0: so. speech. Yeah. <laughs> well, please uh, welcome Michelle O'Brien. Thank you so much for being here, and for having me, and for being students today. I am um, excited to present to you some of my research, but also foreshadow a little bit of future research. And you'll have to forgive me if I'm standing up and doing wild and crazy things with my hands, because it really helps me speak. So, um, today I'm gonna talk to you about Central Asia and the migration stream from Central Asia to Russia. And most of my research focuses on what happens next. So what happens to migrants when they get to Russia and to give you a little bit of a preview, it's not good. So here's Central Asia and the sort of global perspective. And I know there are a lot of geographers here but I have been told that geographers, like you may not also know where Central Asia is. It's an obscure place. (laughs) So here it is, um, sort of zoomed in, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan, so the stands. And um, over here is China, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, and then up in the very top left corner is Moscow. So this is where the sort of origin area that I'm going to be talking about, this migration stream, this is where they're coming from. Can I
1: just ask, does stand mean like
0: country? Yeah, it's like land.
1: Land, okay.
0: Okay, so Central Asian migrants constitute one of the largest migrant groups in Russia. Legal migrants alone from Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan um, uh, comprise one third of all legal migration to Russia. This is a huge proportion of their migration influx. And this doesn't count seasonal or undocumented labor migration. So when you're thinking of estimates of the number of migrants, it's pretty wide-ranging, it's very, very difficult to count, and it's politicized. So if you're on the conservative end and you want to talk about securing borders and you're the Federal Migration Service in Moscow, it's 4 million. And if you're talking about the neo-nationalist political parties who want to emphasize the threat of migrants, it's 15 million. Migrant remittances are a huge part of the GDP and the economy in Central Asian countries. Mm -hmm. It has an enormous impact. The reliance on GDP, on, on migrant remittances in these countries is absolutely staggering. 50% of Tajikistan's GDP is made up of migrant remittances, and 31% of Kyrgyzstan's GDP. Not only does this amount to billions of dollars, billions with a capital B, but it's also the two highest percentages of the GDP in the world that are made up of migrant remittances. So to put it in perspective, Mexico's GDP, 2% of their GDP is made up of migrant remittances. So, throughout the talk, I'll be giving some sort of comparative examples, and hopefully that will help put it into perspective to sort of think of talking about migration as a global phenomenon. I have a quick question. Yeah. I thought
1: these places were oil rich.
0: Yeah, not really. So, Central Asia is more mineral rich with absolutely no way to mine. Okay. Wow. Okay. So, why do they go to Russia? There are lots of different reasons and I can see that you guys have talked about push and pull factors. So there are lots of push factors, lots of pull factors. And then also today I'm gonna to talk a little bit about personal characteristics, which demographers call migrant selectivity and intervening obstacles. And some of these reasons are obvious and some are not so obvious. And I'll go a little bit more into detail, but after arrival, once they get there, conditions in Russia are often really volatile really hostile to immigrant populations. And this should be familiar to us, right? We see this sort of hostility in Europe. um, We see it in the US. So Russia's not a unique case, but this is a very important migrant stream. And of course, because of the large proportion of undocumented migrants, it's a very vulnerable population. In, in, sort of in addition to the uh, political vulnerability that they have with discrimination, hate crimes, violence, and vandalism, um, they also face sort of economic vulnerability with uh, wage cuts at work, unannounced wage cuts, um, not getting paid for months. Um, and especially when you consider how much of the GDP of their home countries is made up of migrant remittances, not getting those wages, not being able to remit is a very big deal. Okay, so it sounds familiar, there are lots and lots of contemporary and historical parallels to large sort of problematic migrant groups um, all over the world and sort of across time. So I think this migrant stream is important and it might sound obscure, but it has these implications for how we understand this phenomenon of migration globally. It also has consequences for the stability and the growth opportunity of both the sending and the origin countries. So we're thinking about Russia's place in our geopolitical reality, right? This is very important to sort of know what's going on with their demographic stability. It also has lots of consequences for the stability of Central Asia. And given its sort of uh, geographic uh, location uh, with China and Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iran right there, the stability in that region is actually really, really critical. Also, I wanna just emphasize these sort of applications of the understanding of migration globally and the, uh, the sort of consequences of changes in migration streams and how we might apply that to Europe and the United States, which is something I have to think a lot about as a sort of sociologist and a demographer where not a lot of people care about my like really intense love for Tajikistan. (laughs) Okay, so who migrates and why do they migrate? Well, first, actually, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were Russians. There were ethnic Russians who lived in Central Asia who migrated back, quote unquote, to Russia. Here's a map of the concentration of ethnic Russians in Central Asia and also um, some in the North Caucasus and you'll see this little red blurb over here at the bottom of Ukraine is Crimea. So Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna talk about Crimea today, but it's interesting. So the red is the concentration of ethnic Russians. Um, Varying percentages, Kazakhstan obviously um, has the most and we see this sort of wave in the 1990s of ethnic Russians going to Russia Um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So around 2000, this starts to reverse. So we start to see the stream of ethnic Russians really waning and we start to see the growth of these sort of titular ethnic group uh, individuals migrating to Russia. So suddenly Russia is becoming this immigrant destination for ethnic Tajiks, Kazakhs, etc. And this Laurel article where um, she talks a lot about the migrant flows, I've included in the resources thing on your USB if you want to do a little further research on the sort of historical part of the migrant stream. So why do they migrate? On the one hand, you have much better economic conditions. These are the GDPs of Russia, the top green line. Kazakhstan, which is surprisingly yeah. keeping up, Turkmenistan, which has definitely gone through an increase, and then down here, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyz Republic, and uh, Tajikistan. And here's the unemployment rate, which is a f- kind of a messy, crazy graph. Um, and you've got, again, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan have been pretty stable, around 12% unemployment. And Russia and Kazakhstan, again, following a really similar trend. But we see certainly um, increased economic opportunities in Russia compared to most of the countries in Central Asia. There's also a demand for labor in Russia. Part of this is due to this shrinking and aging population in Russia. This is the percent of the population that are over 65 in each of these countries. So you've got Russia really skyrocketing. I mean, this is really doubling from uh, 6% in 1960, to uh, about 14, 30, between 13 and 14 percent in the late, the last half of the 2000s. So, um, Does that mean folks are living longer too. It doesn't really mean no. that. The life expectancy no, in Russia is quite low, okay. um, especially for men. And um, you have a really low life expectancy, like on par with oh, South what? Asia. Like in the 50s. In the 50s, yeah. yeah. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure off the top of my head, but it's quite low. Okay. So, um, and in addition to the sort of lower life expectancy, um, which adds to the shrinking of this population, you have very low fertility. So replacement is 2.1 um, births per woman, and uh, the fertility rate in Russia is 1.3, and it's been very, very low for a long time. And the fertility in these other countries, in Central Asia, is more like 3.5. So you definitely have a a disparity there. Okay, so when we're thinking then about the push and the pull factors, this sort of idea of pushes at the origin, pushing migrants out and pulling the pull factors, attracting migrants to a destination, On the push side, you've got these economic opportunities that are very slim in Central Asia, um, political corruption, right? Political conflict in some countries, such as Tajikistan, which went through a civil war after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then of course, um, Scott Radnitz here at the UW wrote a really nice paper about the intersection between political and economic factors um, above and beyond sort of those factors alone can push migration. And then on the pull side, you do have Russia's sort of shrinking aging population, increasing demand for labor, but you also have this idea of cultural familiarity. So when you're thinking about intervening obstacles, culture can be an intervening obstacle in that sort of distance between cultures. But if you have folks who have grown up in the sort of Soviet system, they've gotten the Russian language training, then that cultural distance is a lot shorter. So just a note here then about migrant selectivity and who migrates. So demographers have sort of found these trends where of course migrant groups are heterogeneous and of course it depends on the context. But generally speaking, age and education tend to be very consistent across migrant groups with sort of younger, better educated people migrating. Labor migration is usually comprised of men, um, traditional, especially the sort of more traditional the context is, the origin country is. Access to financial capital is really important for migration, right? So we have found that there's a U-shape, there's a quadratic function to selectivity where the very, very poor don't migrate and the very, very well-off don't migrate. So on one side, you have not enough capital to get out of there. And on the other side, you're embedded, you're an entrenched elite, right? Okay, so now let's talk about intervening obstacles. Lee, Everett Lee, who came up with push-pull, he defines this as sort of distance, actual physical barriers like the Berlin Wall or the Mediterranean Sea, right? immigration laws, cost of transportation, the sort of cost, the general cost of migration, psychological and economic costs. Okay, so in this context then, when we're talking about migration to Russia, I'm talking about intervening obstacles as very strict immigration laws, very expensive permits that keep going up, you have to take a test in order to qualify for a work permit, a Russian political social history test, and it keeps getting harder. And there's lots and lots of reports of the sort of p- politicized nature of the tests, right? There's also harsh anti immigrant politics. And this is both in sort of formal institutional politics, like political parties, but also informal politics, like uh, radical neo nationalist groups. There's street violence, discrimination, um, and So all of these things sort of come together so that political factors do become intervening obstacles. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about anti-immigrant politics. I'm gonna talk about three different categories of uh, three different sort of categories of expression of anti-immigrant politics. So on the one hand, you have formal politics, there's legislation, political parties, Then you have informal institutional politics like neo-nationalist groups that like form a group, they're organized. And then you have this sort of street violence, right? Racial violence, discrimination, these micro-interactions and the media. So when it comes to legislation, right, I'm talking about the sort of work permits, talking about, the ability for the Duma to make laws that are explicitly anti-immigrant and have basically no backlash. Then there are also police activities where um, a very famous example of a market that was mostly sort of um, formed by and staffed by immigrant workers was um, the subject of a riot and several attacks in Moscow in 2013. And the police came to intervene and they arrested all of the migrant workers. They arrested 1200 immigrants and went through like a paperwork process to start deporting people sort of checking their paperwork and the biggest fine that was levied against one of the rioters for like inciting problems right was 90 bucks. So then of course there are work permit requirements that are very restrictive this year alone, the increase has been a tripling of the work permit costs from 21 to $78. This means that when people go back to their origin countries, if they're doing this sort of circular migration trip, when they go back, they have to work and save up for much longer of a period of time, you have increased time back at the origin and possibly not being able to return. Okay, so this guy is Vladimir He's, um He's like the Donald Trump of Russia. He is like, but he won't go away. Well, OK, so like the Donald Trump of Russia. So this is him here. He's the head of the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia. This is the mainstream nationalist, explicitly xenophobic party. And um, it's really, really a hostile, anti-immigrant party. And he's here sort of menacingly like pointing over the streets of Moscow. And the sign says, says LDPR for ethnic Russians. Zawrowski. Right. So it has this very sort of pro-ethnic Russian feel to it, um, and one of the things that is really stable is the ideology of this party. So since 1993, in 1993, Jaranovsky came in third uh, for the presidential elections. Since then, his party has consistently exceeded the threshold of votes that you need in order to sit in the parliament. Okay, so they have parliamentary representation. They have since the collapse of the Soviet Union. They're incredibly stable. They're remarkably stable in their ideology. This is from 2014 that I pulled from their political platform for my master's thesis. Um, This was uh, like one of the many bullet points of what they want to do when they sort of get into power and get representation. Defend the country from migrants. Currently in Russia, there are at least 15 million migrants, especially in major cities. Disease, narcotics, ethnic gangs, these things are the basis of national tension. In ten years it will blow Russia apart from the inside. So this expression obviously takes informal uh, form as well, with neo-nationalist groups, fascist groups, that are just as radical and often more radical than sort of party, and they also uh, sort of supplement that with street violence. So, um, they engage in, many, many groups engage in uh, this sort of National Unity Day march, where they march with racist or anti immigrant slogans. They dress all in black. They are sending very clear signals of who they are. They do like Heil Hitler salutes. Um, They draw on imagery of Hitler. They draw on imagery like the swastikas. They draw on imagery of Stalin. Um, They draw on this sort of like Russian imperial history. Um, to sort of position themselves as these neo-nationalists. So here's uh, a news article about Russian nationalism targeting migrant workers, and this is the National Unity Day march. And you can see, right, they're like drawing all of this imagery from um, historical fascism, really. Here they are again. Um, A common mantra of the neo-nationalist political groups is uh, Russia for ethnic Russians, or return Russia to ethnic Russians. So you might be asking right are these neo nationalist groups even worth considering are they worth my energy to even think about because aren't they fringe right doesn't every country sort of have like fringe radical groups that we shouldn't really be basing the yeah, sort of you got to keep your eye on them. sentiment right okay so are, we might keep our eye on them but do we need to really be sort of talking about them in an academic sense? And one thing that I would argue is that this has practical ramifications. This is a YouTube video. And down here, the title is Russian Nationalist Neo-Nazi attack Immigrants Invaders 2013 Glory to Russia. And these men in the white hoodies here have come in and attacked a sort of phenotypically Central Asian man sitting on the metro, sitting there alone. Um, And they come in through the other door, and they just beat him up in the video. It's really graphic. So in 2014 alone, there were 19 murders of um, migrants and ethnic minorities, 103 injuries, the main targets were Central Asians, 53 acts of vandalism, usually this is breaking windows of ethnic restaurants or doing some sort of stealing from uh, kiosks. And this of course is not an isolated incident, this is happening all over. So um, there have been some speculations about whether or not the Kremlin is tied to some of these groups. Definitely some speculation about the youth group that's Kremlin-supported called Nashi. Have you heard of this? Nashi means ours, our Russia. It's not pretty, right? And I, I, will, I, I, did, I said I wouldn't talk about Crimea, but uh, it always comes up. So Putin's claim to Crimea is ethnic, yeah. right? He's, he's sort of constituting this conflict as an ethnic conflict. Right? Because there are ethnic Russians there, it's mine. I take Crimea, right? And arrests, of course, are low. These attacks go on with impunity, by and large. Okay, so thinking about risk, right? So all migration carries risk, but Central Asian migrants seem to be taking on a, a greater risk, right? It's not just the economic risk. And it's not just a political risk of sort of cost of permits and cost of transportation, but it's this risk of, of physical security. So when the economy falters and it's difficult to remit, and you have this sort of idea that my wages could be cut, or I could be cut from my job, or I could not be paid, what is the point of sort of staying there, right? So it creates this very vulnerable population, and I'll argue that it's not just in Russia where they're vulnerable, but that it also creates vulnerability at home. So we've had reports of wage cuts of 50% or more with no notice, wage areas, right, like not getting paid for months at a time. And there has been some speculation and a couple of reports, although they're debated, the accuracy of those that there's decreasing migration to Russia from Central Asia, that that is, that migration stream is starting to change. This could be for two different reasons. One, it could be because of increase in illegal immigration, right, and we could certainly sort of rationalize that. There's this heavy cost of work permits. Perhaps there's an increase in the undocumented migrants versus the documented. Perhaps it's a decrease in overall migration, though. And this, I, I will argue, leads to vulnerability at the origin And I think that one of the reasons that there's vulnerability at the origin when there's this change in the migration stream, when there's this increase in returning migration, longer stays at home, is because these countries are not prepared to take the returnees. And particularly when you take the case of something like Tajikistan, and you've got 50% of the remittance, the GDP made up by remittances, okay, take away some of that, plus take almost 50% of their workforce is in Russia, Okay, bring some of those guys back, exacerbate unemployment, exacerbate the sort of economic situation. You have a lot of short-term harm to uh, the origin country. So on the good side, there's a good and bad, right? So on the good side, maybe there's a gender balance coming to fruition here because all of the men migrate and perhaps that sort of balance will work out in the long term and be better for the origin country. And perhaps with more people, there's more demand for services and goods, long-term sort of economic growth opportunity. Okay, also, right, one of the long-term effects might be a decreased geopolitical reliance on Russia. If you're Tajikistan and 50% of your workforce goes to Russia, 99% of their migrants overall go to Russia, you don't wanna piss Russia off, right? There's nothing that, you have no leverage in this situation, none. So in a long term, decreased geopolitical reliance on Russia could be a very good thing for these origin countries. However, as I was saying, the returns of these massive proportions of the workforce will really create a huge, tremendous amount of pressure on the origin country's economy, particularly in the short term with the decline of remittances and the exacerbation of high unemployment. And I argue, and I'll foreshadow a little bit of my um, upcoming work, which is that I I argue that this can lead to a rise of social discontent in a place where this is already sort of primed for that. Um, And I I don't have a lot of time to go into this case of Tajikistan but it's it's sort of my upcoming work that I wanted to foreshadow with you. Um, I, I argue that this change in the migrant stream has serious consequences for the stability of Tajikistan and there have been a lot of sort of expert debates about whether or not This sort of feeds into like ISIL recruitment. And I'm not quite sure about that. But what I I do think is that the economic effects will be huge of even a small change in the migrant stream. So I'll skip over this um, and just come to the conclusion that um, of of a report in The Economist in 2013 from a Tajik Taxi cab driver who uh, drove in Saint Petersburg, and he sort of shudders at the recollection of it. And he says that he preferred working nights Mm -hmm. so that police couldn't couldn't pull him over and couldn't notice his darker skin, right? And he comes home really briefly, finds a wife, and then he's going to leave his bride for work, right? And he says, "Without Russia, we'd die." And I think that that really sort of illustrates that interdependence between Central Asia and Russia, Um, and I know I skipped over a lot. There's a lot in your research packet, and I'm happy to answer questions right now. (laughs) Uh, That was like 61 slides. uh, Yeah.
1: Where does China fit into
0: all of this? Yeah, okay, so I had a slide on China. So there is a growing investment in Central Asia from China. And one of the things that I think could be happening to, one of the things that should happen to sort of decrease the pressure and allow for like a a release valve on the pressure of the changing migration stream are new destinations. So we see in the U.S., for example, if you're uh, from Latin America and you go to Arizona and you can be racially profiled, you're probably going to move to Omaha, right? Like there's another place for you and you can do this sort of stepwise migration. I think that that is probably what would give like a release valve for the pressure of this migration stream is new destinations. And we do see some work contracts in places like Dubai, um, where there's a new, new agreements with some of the Central Asian countries to um, send workers there. But it's small, like the change in the last couple of years has been from having 99.9% of your migrants go to Russia to like 99%, right? Like it's very, very small change. But I do think that there's a, when you when you open up economic opportunities and economic agreements between countries, it opens up the opportunity for a migrant stream. And and we know that, right? That's, those things are absolutely intimately related. So if you have that connection and investment, and particularly if that investment flows both ways, um, you can get a migrant stream. So it's po- it's possible.
1: And then you mentioned mining. Why can't they mine, or
0: why
1: don't they mine? Um, is there not the infrastructure, or the?
0: Yeah, so like Tajikistan is 85% mountains. And um, it's very, very difficult to get around. Um, it's very, very difficult to start a, a very a resource-intensive operation like mining. Um, there's not a lot of investment in things like infrastructure. There's not a lot of investment in, like, front-end investment in a, a business opportunity. is not really um, common. So it takes a lot of resources to mine. It takes a ton. How uh, get way m- stuff out? I, I'm not a yeah. miner. No, <laughs> I don't I mean, know. You're, I mean, completely landlocked country. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like out of the. I was yeah. like, I don't know yeah. how to I mine mean, these I mean, things. I mean, um, things yeah. Kind of well, there are train. Like, there's a tr- there's a rail system, um, and a lot of migrants take the rail system. So, I, I I could see opportunities for that. But I mean, there again, you know, like there's another geopolitical tie to Russia. Um. So yeah, yeah. It's a well taken point for sure. Yeah.
1: I don't know if this data exists, but I'm curious if they, if migration, say globally, was divided into sort of the following three broad categories. One is uh, totally legal. One would be totally illegal, where let's say a where people are smuggled in right into the middle of a country, not even going through channels and trying to get reestablished but totally illegally. And then sort of through the, I guess it's still legal, but through the you know channels going through. Uh, going across the boat, going to a particular the center where you're held, going through the paper process. Mm-hmm. Is it divided up that way, so that there's good From good. Central
0: Asia, Central or like, Asia, globally?
1: Or either one, or, or anywhere. Or, or, I think or...
0: that's a really good question. And I think, I mean, one of the questions that you guys had for the last group was the difference between sort of refugee and asylum seekers. And I think a lot of those categories aren't necessarily about what the migrants are doing, but what the destination country defines what they're doing as so like it's a legal definition and um, so it's going to depend on sort of your destination like what actions you take that will be then illegal right so if you're entering into a country and you don't have any papers but there are no papers to get right it's mm-hmm. it's a complex thing I think um but I, I, I could see it sort of existing on a spectrum right like overstaying a visa is you're not. You didn't migrate into the country without documents, but you do. You're now staying over. So, are you, where do you fit on that spectrum? Yeah, I, I think that that's a neat idea. So well, I, I feel like I'm like talking too much, but I gave me a chance.
1: So, um, what if, if is part of the reason that Russian the remittances if if they really are in the billions and that those billions are no longer in russia you know you're essentially they're essentially taking money that could be part of russia's gross domestic product and giving it to their own countries, could that be one of the reasons that they're discriminated against?
0: Well, uh, yeah, I think that if you're thinking from like the neo-nationalist perspective, um, then yeah, they're taking our jobs, right? I mean, it's the very same argument, right? It's very, very familiar to us, they're taking our jobs, right?
1: Even if but you, you saw that the, or you showed that the unemployment rate is low, and so there, there are jobs to be had. You're not necessarily taking the jobs, but but you're taking the, the money from those jobs and giving it to your own country. You're not leaving it in Russia or investing it or
0: yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Although that's really not a prominent factor in neo-nationalist platforms. The really prominent factors are like are like these criminals, right? These diseased criminals are coming into this country and like how many diseases can you possibly bring from Tajikistan on that train right it's it's very basic i mean it, there's a sort of um there's certainly like a need for migrant labor as there is in most developed countries right um there's a need for migrant labor and of course that's ignored right there's like no rational argument for neo nationalists other than like you're taking over our country right. right and and that's where i think you see the like politicized numbers you know you've got a federal um, estimation of undocumented migrants of four million and uh, Zierinowski's estimate, coming from where, is 15 million, right? So you've got this very politicized argument where on either side you can make a sort of political argument of either like we're doing our jobs or like look at this huge threat, right? So I, I don't really see, th- I, I, I mean, I, I see it as an argument, like potential argument, but I don't actually see it in the political platforms. It's It doesn't come up, It's because it's so like, uh, Everything that they're talking about is such a basic fear-based argument, right? And how does this affect
1: Europe? Does it or is it
0: just well, that we're comparing kind of? Well, there are two, there are two ways that I think that this um, affects Europe. So on the one hand, I think there is a practical implication, especially when you're looking at um, a lot of arguments about Central Asian migration and North, Caucas- North Caucasian migration to Russia is looking at Moscow as a transit point to the west. So looking, if you go to Moscow, can you get out to the west, right? And I think that's what a lot of political arguments have been, is that like, oh, look at these migrants, they're coming into Moscow, what's next, Berlin? Right, like there's a lot of this sort of like step migration arguments going on in in the political realm, but I think that there are applications in sort of we over the last decade have seen a really tremendous rise in this very same kind of neo-nationalism in Europe. I mean, you see the same arguments being made with League Nord in um, Italy, with National Front in France, to to a certain extent, Swiss People's Party, right? Like we see this, and we see them winning elections, and we see this sort of this reaction to in of migration and reactions to the EU, and does this have practical consequences for the ethnic minorities and migrants who live in Europe and depend on it for their livelihoods? And my research has shown that, in Russia at least, there is a practical implication of the success of nationalist parties for whether or not a migrant leaves an area. And I think that that's, I mean, that's thats the consequence for Europe, I think, is the sort of, how do you treat your ethnic minorities, and will they leave?
1: Um, the, one, the one sample you showed us was somebody who married and intended to leave. I mean, yeah. He, he was never intending to stay, is what it sounded like. In Tajikistan. Right.
0: He was in Tajikistan in Dushanbe, and he was being interviewed, and he, he said, well, I came back to marry, and I'm going to leave her here. Right. So he We're,
1: had never, he,
0: hadn't, he doesn't really intend to migrate to Russia. Well, um, so, so to they... Yeah, yeah. So there's there's on one hand there's like seasonal labor migration, right? So um, you stay for nine months, you come back for three, you stay for a year, you come back for a couple of months. Um, Like in Nepal, they do two-year contracts with Dubai, so they'll go out for two years and then they'll come back for a month and get their wives pregnant and then leave again for two years. It's a really really cyclical. Um, But then there is permanent migration, right? There is like overstaying your visa or um, so. I think there are two camps for sure, Um, and what I found, so in my research, it's not just migrants, but it's ethnic minorities who are moving, who are leaving. So if you were born in Russia, and you're an ethnic minority, and the Nationalist Party does really, really well in your region, you're out of there. Because the signal that they're sending is you're not welcome here, yeah. And, And the signal of street violence, I mean, if you think about the sort of how do you profile for street violence, by phenotype, by phenotypical differences, right? So if I was born in Russia and I'm a Chechen or Kazakh, and uh, my my probability of being discriminated against or beaten up on the street is, is the same as a migrant. Still dangerous, yeah. Do you find that to be any different in like Tatarstan at all, like in Kazan? Oh yeah, good I, good question. So. The difference, right, for Tatarstan or Kazan, these like titular regions, is that there's a huge percentage of ethnic minorities there, right? So you've got like a ton of Tatars in Tatarstan. So I think that there is a protective element to that. So if you're in Tatarstan, first of all, the percentage, the sort of vote share of the neo nationalists is not going to be big anyway. Um, And then the second thing is that there is a sort of like bubble effect, right? Like you're in this sort of, you're in a sort of protective, like strength in numbers. I think where it really comes down to is the sort of regions around Moscow, like the central district where you're getting a lot of hate crimes and a lot of sort of political (laughs) technical term I just made (laughs) up, the political ick of Russia. Cool. well I um, I put maps and everything in your resources file so pile uh, so if you have any questions feel free to email me after I'm happy to answer questions or um, like explain to you what I've put in your resources packet if it's sort of a hodgepodge but thank you very much thank you